Good afternoon. It's Friday the 30th of October 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host today, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, well, we're starting straight away with, uh, with REACT. Uh, and uh, well, here we are. REACT, what does that stand for? The Real-Time Assessment of Community Transmission. Uh, and there's a new study out. Uh, this is the latest results from uh, Imperial College London and Ipsos Mori. Uh, different to the results from that we were talking about on Wednesday. This is a different study. Uh, and uh, well, these are the key features. 128 people per 10,000 uh, were infected in England, up from 60 per 10,000 is what they're claiming. Uh, they're claiming the virus is doubling every nine days. Uh, they are claiming the national R rate has increased to 1.6. Uh, and they're saying that the prevalence was highest in Yorkshire and the Humber, uh, and that the percentage of people infected aged 55 to 64 increased more than threefold. So there you go. That is what they're claiming from their survey of uh, uh, a few thousand people. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the, what the number was, uh, but apparently these figures reinforce the need for everyone to follow their local COVID alert level rules. Uh, so what are the local COVID alert levels? Well, of course, there's tier one. We come into the tiers, medium, that's yellow. Uh, and uh, that leads us to, to high. Uh, and of course, if you are on a high level, which a number of new uh, areas have, Yorkshire and the Humber, uh, West Midlands, uh, East Midlands, East of England, uh, Southeast, and, uh, and so on. But then you move to very high if you're particularly unlucky. Uh, that's tier three. But now there's talk of a tier four. Um, so we're not clear what that is going to be, but it's obviously going to be very, very, very high, uh, Patrick. Um, and uh, so bearing in mind, uh, I mean, what we're really talking about once we get to tier four uh, is going to be a, a total lockdown. It's not going to be a national lockdown, but on a local level, a total lockdown in the style that we saw before. The obvious question is, where's tier zero? Is, uh, is there a tier zero? Uh, if you go to Scotland, there's a tier zero. In Scotland, there's zero, one, two, three, and four at the moment. So, so uh, of course, tier one in, in England and Wales, uh, or in England at least, uh, is medium. There is no low level. So there is a presumption that medium is the lowest level of alert we can be on. Uh, in Scotland, though, there is a tier zero. And they're basing this on what, PCR tests? PCR positive testing? Uh, well, we're going to come on to that in just one moment, but that's exactly right. But in the meantime, of course, one of the other things they're uh, basing it on is uh, the COVID-19 app. Uh, and of course, uh, we've all seen the, the nice little video that they produced to introduce that. Well, everybody will be very glad to know that 40% uh, is the total number of downloads on this. 40% of eligible smartphones owned by adults have downloaded the app. Uh, that's not a great figure, uh, Patrick, uh, you know, bearing in mind that we're told that, uh, uh, you know, in order to prevent this virus and get back to some kind of normal, we've got to have track and trace fully operational. Well, it, it appears that 60% of the population uh, aren't buying that story. Yeah. How, how would you administer it? How would you administer this type of program uh, if, 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 you know, 80% or 90% of the eligible smartphones actually download it and what are you going to keep track of? people and how much distance they are with other people who might be PCR positive or how, you, how are you even going to roll out this uh, testing regime that they, they've been talking about now for eight months? Uh, well, this is a very good question. And, and actually, the press release that went along with, uh, with the latest statement, uh, with, because there have been updates to the app, uh, it's clear that they're trying to persuade people that they can't get traction on it. They're trying to persuade people that it's privacy aware, uh, that it's safe. 
that uh, they're upgrading the, the Bluetooth connectivity to make sure that they're only identifying people that absolutely definitely could have been infected uh, and only tracking and tracing those people. Uh, so they're, they're, the, the, the press release is, is very much trying to persuade people that uh, it's, it's a good thing to do. It's a hard sell, isn't it? it? It seems to be a very hard sell. But you know what the hardest sell of all is? The hardest sell of all is to convince the public that they're in the midst of a plague right now and that this is the one of the deadliest respiratory viruses known to man uh, and it's just ravaging communities where the pandemic is still, quote, raging. That is the hardest sell of all and that's the underlying premise that everything is built on top of. This is absolutely correct. Now, I uh, want to highlight this from yesterday. The Spectator has published this uh, article, COVID in winter 2020, a worst case scenario. Uh, and they've uh, published uh, Sage's advice to the government for this winter, uh, which doesn't seem to have been uh, generally available. Uh, and uh, well, this is uh, a little bit of what it says. Below, we're publishing Sage's classified report for the winter of 2020. Its assumption is that restrictions stay in place until March 2021. I think everything that we're seeing so far, Patrick, uh, demonstrates that that is probably a correct statement. But uh, if you read this, and I do recommend people do read this, uh, this SAGE document, uh, it's pretty much full of the usual kind of rhetoric that we've heard so much from them in recent uh, months. Uh, but I just wanted to highlight this particular graph here. Um, this is uh, the reasonable worst case scenario, deaths per week in England and Wales. Um, and I want to highlight uh, this section here because this is the first time uh, that I've seen the SAGE and the government acknowledge uh, excess mortality from non for non-COVID reasons, okay? Uh, and uh, they are suggesting that we are going to see excess mortality for non-COVID reasons. That's the grey bars at the top. The blue bars are excess mortality that they claim are going to be caused by uh, COVID in the reasonable worst case scenario. Uh, so if we assume 10,000 deaths per week on average, which is pretty much what is the average for, for England and Wales, um, they're adding an extra two to 3,000 deaths per week from COVID-19. And then they're adding another 1,000 to 1,500 deaths on top of that from non-COVID related issues. Um, and uh, well, this is an acknowledgement that that is going on, but there's nothing in their worst case scenario document, this classified document, which, which attempts to explain the cause of these non-COVID excess mortality uh, or offer any solution to that, that it's just acknowledged. Another fundamental question is if you go back to that graph, Mike, um, this worst case scenario, is this a worst case scenario with lockdown measures, with social distancing, with masks or without? That's kind of an important question. Uh, no, this is the worst case scenario, which is uh, justifying uh, their, their recommended action, which is the lockdown, of course. So this is with no no regulations, no uh, mitigation measures at all. Is that worst case scenario? Yes. So that doesn't um, that that that's difficult uh, to square with uh, where we're at right now because obviously now we we've have measures in place, various measures, and they're willing to ramp them up uh, in certain regions and certain cities. So uh, th this is also a fundamental question that came up in uh, Simon Dolan's. Uh, uh, legal proceedings as well mm -hmm. in the trial is this you know from what situation are you comparing 
with a pre-lockdown or are you comparing with beginning of lockdown to later in lockdown? And this was a major point of contention. This was a major argument uh, between the uh, the QCs representing Simon Dolan and uh, the court. So, uh, and again, I, I see this cheating going on, this kind of fudging going on in, in a lot of the analysis and in some of these computer model projections, how they're framed, you know. And so that's kind of a basic thing, but it's something that people aren't really uh, looking at. But it does change the whole picture completely when you're making comparisons. Well, it does. And the point that I was making on Wednesday's program, of course, is that, that they're constantly moving the goalposts with respect to what the uh, with with respect to the, the the data itself. So it's very hard to compare apples with apples if you're looking at something, you know, hospital occupancy in 2020, 2020 to 2021, and compare that with 2019 to 2020 or 2018 to 2019. It's very very hard to 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 find that data that is in a comparable form. It's, it's, it's really tricky. But now, uh, one of our viewers, uh, and thank you very much for this, uh, wrote to, to his MP, which is Jeremy Hunt, uh, to ask about, uh, about false positives. And of course, false positives, uh, a large part of the, uh, the number of cases that we're seeing at the moment, because of course, positive result is a case, whether it is actually uh, results in hospitalization or not. Uh, and Jeremy Hunt uh, replied, uh, and this is what he had to say. Uh, you're right to highlight the issue with false positives, although some of the numbers on this have been manipulated to appear far worse than they are. Okay, that's what he claims. Uh, increasing testing on the whole community wouldn't lead to more restrictions. It would reduce the need for them. Is that happening? What he's saying there seems to go against... Uh, reality. Reality and basic the basic logic that the government's working on, the premise that the government's working on. So... That's a bit of a strange statement by Jeremy Hunt. So you're left with two conclusions after the statement. Does Jeremy Hunt, A, not know what he's talking about, or is, is it B, he's being uh, deceptive? So it has to be one or the other, because what he's saying there doesn't actually square even with what the government is saying and doing. Absolutely. So uh, increasing testing to the whole community wouldn't lead to more restrictions. It would reduce the need for them. Only those who have tested positive and had a confirm confirmatory second test would need to isolate. And then he said the rest of us uh, would be free to go about our daily lives as normal, uh, in as normal way as possible. Um, well, he's claiming that, but I don't see any evidence of that actually being the case. Uh, and indeed, uh, in a normal world, although it should be the case, but the government denies that it would be the case, uh, but Public Health England is publishing documents like this, understanding cycle threshold in SARS-CoV-2 RTs PCR tests, a guide for health protection teams. And I just want to highlight a little bit of what this says. Uh, it basically says exactly what we've been reporting for a number of weeks. A high cycle threshold indicates a low concentration of viral genetic material, which is typically associated with a lower risk of infectivity. A single CT value in the absence of clinical context cannot be relied upon for decision-making about a person's infectivity. And this, of course, is the point that Jeremy Hunt has just made. You need a confirmatory test. Right. How many people are getting those? None, as far as I'm aware, unless you're in a hospital setting already. Exactly. So what does that mean? That means that the PCR test is not a diagnostic test. It's not a diagnostic test. There's your proof right there. But actually, we've been reporting on this for months, actually. Uh, and so, so has a number of other reputable, now reputable media outlets, mm -hmm. maybe not reputable before this uh, crisis, but now reputable media outlets have also reported the same thing. So we, we see the government slowly, quietly catching up 
uh, on some of these things in the background, but yet the frontline ministers are really sticking to their guns and these chief science advisors who are supposed to be the experts in the science, uh, they're still working on March 2020 mm. uh, narratives and uh, discovery of data and, uh, and the science. So that's interesting. Still behind on the front line, Mike. The back line's kind of got it now, mm. but the front line haven't got Not it yet. Not quite yet. Yeah. Uh, now we've had, uh, we've had a question in from a viewer, and this is it. Uh, is a hedge fund called Greensill funding NHS pay? The answer uh, is no, uh, and I'm going to explain why that is. So here is uh, Greensill, uh, Greensill's website. Uh, making finance fairer is what they say it is all about. Uh, and as you can see at the bottom, uh, welcome to the real-time pay revolution. Uh, uh, but this is the key uh, brand name here, Earned. Uh, so what they bought up, this company earned uh, at the start of the year or so, um, and then they managed to sell its services to uh, initially seven NHS trusts. Um, so they're not actually paying or they're not funding uh, the pay of NHS uh, personnel. What they're doing is offering payday loans um, to NHS personnel, and they've effectively been sponsored by the NHS to provide these payday loans uh, to NHS staff. Um, and the argument from them and from the NHS seems to be that, you know, people working in the NHS are low paid uh, and they find it hard to make ends meet from one month to the next. They need some interim financing in the middle of the month. Uh, and so this is provided for them. Uh, Greensill claims that this will be provided free of charge to NHS workers now and forever, in fact. Um, although uh, I believe the NHS is having to pay a little bit for it. So um, that's what it is. It's not that they're funding uh, salaries. It's that they are providing payday loans to, uh, to staff. See, this is a bit strange, Mike, because uh, we're told that uh, the government conjured up, what, $100 billion out of thin air for uh, NHS testing? Not long ago, right? Well, that's what they were going to do. I think they've dropped that idea. This is Operation Moonshot you're talking about. Yeah, they, yeah. They've but dropped the, that. The money was there, wasn't it? And now we're told NHS workers don't make enough to live on. Uh, this is a problem here. We, we have hundreds of billions of dollars available. Rishi conjured up, shook the magic money tree, but there's not enough money for the nation's uh, heroes, uh, the people we all had to go out and clap for uh, for the first couple of months of lock, lockdown. Not enough money to give them a living wage? Uh, that's, that and seems they need to be, payday loans? That seems to be the argument. That's uh, interesting. So now that's been going on for, for a number of months. So thank you to the viewer that uh, sent the question. Uh, I'm happy to, hopefully we've cleared that up anyway. Uh, so let's move on to this then. Police. Uh, well, police, 6,000 new recruits. Uh, you'll be glad to know, Patrick, because uh, if we're going to uh, enforce uh, COVID lockdowns, we need more police. Uh, so the government, of course, is, has, is in the middle of a campaign to recruit 20,000 additional police over the next three years. It's apparently ahead of schedule with 6,000 new uh, officers joining up to the end of September. Um, and uh, one year on from this uh, campaign launch, uh, 5,824 is the actual number for England and Wales. And that means that, uh, as I say, things are ahead of schedule. This is what Pretty Patel had to say. Before you advance this, Mike, uh, look at this image here. You've got one female police officer in the back line. She doesn't have her pandemic mask on properly. The nose is out. And then the woman on the front, I believe it's a, it's a Muslim policewoman? Looks like it. With a truncheon over her shoulder? Yes. 
and she's not wearing any mask. No. So this is just a wild image, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. It's fantastic. So that's that. Pretty Patel uh, said this. I would like to extend my gratitude to the new recruits for joining the police and being part of this heroic national effort. So the heroic national effort, of course, is all about stepping up enforcement against those flouting rules in place uh, to, to help stop the spread of coronavirus. Um, so that's what they're all about. I'm not certain now whether the Ministry of Defence Police are part of this recruitment process or whether this is additional to the to this recruitment process. Now, just to clarify, Ministry of Defence Police is a civilian police force. It's not the uh, Royal uh, uh, Military Police. This is uh, a civilian police force. It's supposed to be um, sort of policing MOD uh, institutions uh, plus nuclear power stations and this kind of stuff. But they have some specialised units. Uh, and uh, this tweet that they pushed out, uh, that date is incorrect, that they pushed out yesterday or the day before. Uh, are you a serving police officer looking for your next challenge? Join our operational support unit and you'll be trained in the use of firearms, public order tactics, police search and more. Uh, left policing no more than three years ago, you may also apply. So they're trying to encourage people that have left the police within the last three years to get back in touch. Now, this is the graphic that went along with that tweet. So it's pretty clear what it is that they're selling here uh, and the type of role that they're selling. Uh, and so just uh, to let you know what uh, this is about, uh, the, uh, the operational support unit role includes protester removal by the use of cutting equipment and where required at height, uh, and uh, also have a level one public order and radiolog radiological protection capability. Recruitment is ongoing until further notice. Um, so it's not clear how many people they're actually looking for, but they certainly don't have any uh, end point in mind for recruitment. But they're, what they're describing there, level one public order, uh, it, it absolutely looks like the main focus of the recruitment within the UK police at the moment is for public order. Uh, and uh, as, pretty, as the, uh, the general press release was talking about, uh, stepping up enforcement against those flouting the COVID rules. Uh, which includes, of course, the protests in Trafalgar Square and other places, uh, and uh, maybe perhaps at the uh, Cenotaph next weekend. So if they're, if they're trying to recruit out of a pool of ex-police ex officers, right? That's what it seems to be. Well, uh, no, that, that including ex-police officers. Including yes. ex-police they, they officers. Said, they said you could apply from other police services. If you're serving already in other police services, you can apply, but they also want people uh, that have left within the last three years. So pe people, I think the, the ad, Mike, screams of people wanting action, uh, trained firearms, et cetera, yes. crowd control. So it, they may be looking for a certain type of a profile of person. I say it's slightly more aggressive maybe. That uh, seems to be what they're aiming for. Looking for a little more adventure out on the street. Yes, possibly. indeed. Yeah. Um, okay, now if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. That would be very much uh, appreciated. And a final reminder uh, that Alternative View 11.1 .1 is taking place uh, this weekend, uh, tomorrow and on Sunday. Uh, details at alternativeview.co.uk, also in the UK Column website. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, I just want to mention and remind everybody that there will be no uh, UK Column news on Monday. Uh, we will be back on, uh, on Wednesday, but I'll, I'll remind you of that at the end of the programme uh, once again. Now, Patrick, of course, uh, the election, only a matter of a few days away in the United States. That's right. Here we have uh, Donald Trump and the Democratic challenger, Joe Biden. So we're about four days out right now 
from November 3rd. That's the U.S. election. They'll be going to the polls, uh, but as we've reported, Mike, uh, previously on some of the Election Edge specials, uh, which uh, you can watch up at the UKcolumn.org or at 21stCenturyWire.com, uh, there's been a millions of people, record-breaking numbers that have voted early already in this election. So in terms of the stuff that we're looking at in our coverage here, uh, we're looking at uh, battleground states, we're looking at swing states where there are late ballot court challenges. This is the latest thing to be looking out for. So there's challenges, legal challenges, going all the way up to the Supreme Court with North Carolina. Are and these state Supreme Courts, or is this uh, the federal Supreme Court? This is, this is the federal Supreme oh, well, Court, yeah. So the, the Supreme Court has been asked to, to review uh, challenges made at the state level or regulations put down at state Supreme Court levels by different parties. Uh, and so they've ruled differently in, in different states. And so this is really coming down to a constitutional issue. Mm -hmm. um, are you know, democratic activists who are petitioning the state Supreme Court, or uh, are they able to override election, normal election rules? And this is about extending the vote. So in some cases, they want to extend the vote two weeks after the election. So the argument made by Republicans is you can't do this. This is going to create post-election chaos mm -hmm. if you can't call a result on the day. Uh, so you can clearly see there's a strategy developing uh, by the Democrats, which is to extend the election, uh, the decision, and Facebook is on board with that. We've reported all this in great detail at our special Election Edge episodes. Uh, so that one particular story here, this is what broke uh, in the last couple of days, Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Absentee ballots can be received after Election Day. Supreme Court's ruled. So, it, it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, how, how many days after Election Day? How long is this going to go on for? Is it going to go on for a week, a month? It, it depends which state. It depends which state because some states already have a three-day extension uh, that ballots need to be postmarked. Um, you know, by Election Day could be received up to three days. Mm. Those ballots are then segregated uh, and they'll be counted. And so other states, they're petitioning for nine days, ten days. And because there's, it's the, petition, the court cases have come in so late, Supreme Court doesn't have time to review. And the new uh, justice, the, to much fanfare, Amy Coney Barrett, the uh, conservative uh, justice that was just nominated by Trump, she couldn't even weigh in on these two recent ones uh, because she hasn't had time to review the material. And there's a lot of pressure on her by the press, uh, by the Democrats, that she recuse herself because she's been appointed so late in the game, right before an election. So clearly, the Republicans, President Trump, they, they want to get a, a, a better, uh, more, more conservative Supreme Court in before the election, but they're not actually going to be able to you know, rule the Supreme Court. They could rule on Pennsylvania and, and uh, discount this extension after the election. So there could be a ruling three days, four days, a week after. So this is a bit of a very strange thing, and you know this is where it's going to become really controversial. It's going to be a real flashpoint. There, there will be protests, riots, all sorts of things that we think are going to happen after the election. And again, we've detailed all this. I mean, your electoral system is an electoral college system. Most people understand that from the 2016 election and, and even before that, but particularly 2016. Uh, and the controversy over that. Um, if, They'll be calling for that to be abolished as well if Trump wins. Right, yeah. but but uh, it, the election day is the third. Normally what happens, uh, there's a count made and when does the ele the Electoral College finally make, make their decision normally? Yeah, normally the, it, it's kind of done and dusted by midnight uh, when all the returns come in. Um, so, you but know, in this case it could take a week? 
it could take longer. It could take longer. So, uh, you know, the Electoral College is, is, is a constitutional provision in order to create uh, balance uh, amongst 50 states in a union so that uh, the elections aren't always decided by the big metropolitan centers. So it's, it's designed to create more parity. That's what the Electoral College is. So it's, it's a Republican, it's a, it, it's a feature of the Republic in a constitutional Republic. So it's not done by the popular vote. So th this is why it's become controversial in a hyper-partisan uh, political environment that we have now. Okay, and final question on this. Uh, if there is a delay, and the delay takes more than a few days, uh, what happens to the presidency at that time? Uh, well, the, pre the president is still the president uh, you know, right up until inauguration, right. uh, which is in January. But, but what will happen if, if there's national rioting, if rioting in five, six, seven cities, if there's arson rioting in Washington, D.C., if the White House comes under siege, which it did during the post-George Floyd mm. uh, incident. So this has already happened this year, and uh, everyone will be masked, wearing masks out, you know, marauding in streets all over the country, not accepting the election. So that's very similar to what we saw in Belarus, okay? Yeah. Or this what we saw yeah. in, in, in the Arab Spring or in, in the Ukraine, for mm. instance, in the Maidan. So you could have a, a color revolution, as we've been warning for months, mm. You could have a color revolution uh, type thing engineered in the U.S. right after the election. And so the, the idea would be to create a, as much chaos and disturbance and disruption uh, that it becomes a, a national media and a global media st uh, story. Mm -hmm. And then there would be calls for the president to step down. And God forbid if any of the peaceful protesters, you know, dies or someone gets shot or young person or something mm. is hurt, then it becomes a martyr situation. Mm. And then, you know, it just becomes an emotional story and another kind of George Floyd times 10 because you have the weight of the election on the back of that. So, And, and uh, we had reports yesterday, the day before in Pennsylvania of explosives being found in the back of a van from some of the local media. And explosives by explosives, the, the, the reports were suggesting sticks of dynamite, but that that's implying things moving in a very bad direction. Well, if you add any incident like that into this mix, mm -hmm. um, it's you know really volatile, to mm -hmm. say the least. I mean, who knows? Anything, I mean, all bets are off at that point. Mm -hmm. So what's clear is that Dem Democrats have said that uh, they will not accept um, a, a Trump victory by hook or crook, mm -hmm. and they'll go right through the courts and do everything uh, right as long as it takes. So it could be a repeat of 20, uh, 2000 Bush versus Gore, mm -hmm or Al Franken's Senate race in Minnesota in 2008, where they basically took months to, to come to a consensus, as Mark Zuckerberg calls it, a consensus of who won the election. And that's what will be accepted uh, on, on the main. So we'll see if that actually plays out. Because if there's a, a giant electoral landslide by Trump, even these states, even these late ballot states, even if they're all to be held in stasis and not confirmed, they know how many late ballots there'll be. It's a certain percentage. And if the margin is so great, then they're going to be discounted anyway. But yeah. they'll still go to court and demand they be counted and recounted and recounted. So it's going to become a lawfare situation. So we're calling this a lawfare coup by the Democrats. And they'll do it, by the way. It's not, it's not a question of if. No, they've been preparing for it for months. They're, they're going to yeah. do it. Yeah. So it, it just depends how it's going to play out and whether the media pushes it, how hard the media pushes it. Because it'll be enabled by the press and media at the end of the day. Well, bearing in mind the media has absolutely not reported on Hunter Biden's emails, it's pretty likely the media is going to be 100% behind this. And in fact, 
uh, we'll be coming on to a little bit of uh, media censorship in a minute, which right. implies exactly that. That's right. So for any more details on this, uh, just go to 21stCenturyWire.com, click on the Election Edge 2020. That's our live blog. You'll get all sorts of tips, updates, stuff that's not necessarily being picked up by the mainstream media, some big reporting that, like we said, is being censored uh, on social media and stuff like that. And you know, go check that out at our Election Edge live blog. Um, okay, so uh, let's move on to the BBC then. And here we are, BBC issues staff with new social media guidance. And what's this saying? Employees uh, will be told not to, quote, express a personal opinion on matters of public policy, politics, or controversial subjects. Uh, this announcement says the BBC follows new Dir Director General Tim Davies' pledge last month to impose new social media rules. It's also going to tell staff to disclose their earnings outside of the corporation on a public database. Uh, they said that they considered impartiality in the context of public expressions of opinion, uh, taking part in campaigns and particip participating uh, in marches or pre uh, protests. This is what they've considered and that the new guidance will apply to staff, whether they're using online platforms professionally or personally. So you're not allowed to have an opinion, a personal opinion, Patrick, if you're working for the BBC uh, from now on. Sounds a lot like Pravda during the Stalin regime, doesn't it? Mm. What can you say? What's the difference between working for the Chinese state media and working for the BBC? I mean, even RT, the, you know, the, the Russians, they allow their uh, journalists to have... To have whatever opinion they, they wish. Well, yeah, to a degree, I imagine. You know, there must be a company line, but uh, at least they're allowed to sort of freewheel a little bit on social media, and they do, by the way. Yeah, I wonder if the BBC concerned that uh, they're perhaps some uh, journalists working for them are reaching other conclusions in the uh, editorial line. But anyway, we were talking about censorship in the press uh, with respect to the US election. And this is quite a, a staggering development here, in a sense, because this is Glenn Greenwald on his own uh, blog, My Resignation from The Intercept. Uh, and this is uh, what he had to say. Today, I set my intention to resign from The Intercept, the news outlet I co-founded in 2013. The Intercept's editors, in violation of my contractual right of editorial freedom, censored an article I wrote this week. And can you imagine what the subject was? Uh, yeah, we know what it is. Hunter Biden's emails. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, that's incredible. Glenn Greenwald, uh, the founder, co-founder of The Intercept, co-founded it to sort of get away from censorship. Um, and it was written in his contract that he wouldn't be censored, and they went and did just that. They did yeah. censor his article during an election cycle. So th this is happening in so-called you know alternative outlets, although it's a well-funded, cor slightly corporate outlet. But it's still it's not you know mainstream mainstream. But still, even there, uh, there's these uh, censorship protocols that are coming in, very partisan, very much in line with what Silicon Valley wants. Um, so uh, we will have uh, a link to the uh, to his resignation statement under the uh, in the in the description for this video on YouTube, but also on the UK Column website shortly after the program. Um, so I do recommend people go and read this in full because actually many of the points that he's making are points that we've been making and criticisms that we've been making of the mainstream media for a very long time. Uh, essentially, he's saying that the Intercept has, as you say, moved from being. Uh, this organization, which is supposed to be anti-censorship, to being just another mainstream media outlet with the same types of censorship that everywhere, as everywhere else. And embed with the intelligence community yes. as well. So uh, 
it, it, is, it is worth reading the full statement uh, just to get a feeling for where he's coming from. And I think I agreed with most of what he had to say. It's a, it's a great tome that he's written, uh, unarguably. It's, it's a fantastic piece. Yes. So. Um, well, uh, what's going on uh, with the Labour Party, Patrick? Well, it's finally happened, Mike. They've done the deed, the deed that they've wanted to do for so long. Here's Sir Keir Starmer. He defends the decision to suspend former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. There's Corbyn right there. That's the image of Corbyn, by the way, that's going around on all the media wires today. It's very fitting. Uh, he's kind of been silenced uh, again. But uh, Corbyn's been suspended from the Labour Party. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. So this is what happened. Uh, this is the organization, the EHRC, has found that Labour breached the Equality Act on three counts. That's Equality and Human Rights Commission. Uh, and also the Board of Deputies of British Jews says the report is a damning verdict on what Labour did to the Jews under Jeremy Corbyn and his allies. So pretty strong words there, Mike. Um, big claims, in fact. And uh, we'll go a little bit further here. So in its referral of labor to the EHRC last year, pro-Israel group, the Jewish Labor Movement, had insisted that the body had a duty to force the Labor Party to acknowledge that it had become institutionally anti-Semitic. That's a pretty strong imperative there, Mike, mm. pretty strong directive there. So you can see the political machine here, the power involved in this. I mean, really bringing the party to its knees and really, you know, hanging its former leader in public, tarring and feathered, and kicked out of the party that he joined at the age of 15, I believe. Mm. So pretty incredible. Well, in his defense, this is what he had to say. There's a long statement here on Facebook, but we took out the important part. This is the offending article that uh, apparently got Corbyn kicked out of the party that he loved and served for so long. One anti-Semite is one too many, but the scale of the problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the party, as well as by much of the media. Now, looking at that statement, Mike, who's going to really argue with that from a factual point of view? That's pretty much 100% true. Well, it is, and if you're looking at the situation objectively and without a political motivation. And also, if you read his whole statement, he's very conciliatory towards the Jewish community, mm. apologizes profusely for anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. So he got really bent over backwards mm. uh, for the lobby, but made that one small statement that it was over-exaggerated, and boom, he's out of the party. So let's take a look at the organization here uh, that delivered the fatal blow uh, on behalf of the Jewish labor movement here. This is the uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission. When I first saw this, I thought this was an EU organization, Mike, but just by its name, starting with E, and by its logo and everything, but it's not. This is a British organization. Uh, stands slightly outside of government, I believe, or is it It's a bit of a third sector? It is a bit of a third sector organization. Third sector organization. So the investigation into anti-Semitism into Labour Party, 17-month investigation, and in it, they only found two, quote, unlawful acts, uh, and apparently... But this has been heralded as a great victory against anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. So uh, this is what Jeremy Corbyn says in response. I will strongly contest the political intervention to suspend me. He joins Chris Williams, uh, former uh, Labour MP from Derby, uh, in people who recently have been kicked out of the party, high-profile members of the party. 
I've made it absolutely clear that those who deny there has been an anti-Semitism problem in the Labour Party are wrong. I will continue to support a zero tolerance policy towards all forms of racist. That's pretty much what he said his whole career, and it's pretty much what he's done his whole career. But he's been singled out and he's been targeted for special treatment. Uh, and so we've seen how this has been developing over the years. This is what Keir Starmer, current Labour leader, has to say. He says, if after all the pain and all the grief and all the evidence in this report, all the evidence uh, after 17 months was only two unlawful uh, acts, supposedly, there are still those who think that there's no problem with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and that's all exaggerated or a factional attack, then frankly, you are part of the problem and you should be nowhere near the Labour Party either. So that's the current Labour leader, his position, which really uh, mirrors the Tony Blair position, it mirrors the uh, Israeli lobby position, it, it mirrors everybody. So, uh, and it would mirror the Tony Blair position because he is a Blairite. Yeah, so, so in his defense, this is what Jeremy Corbyn says, uh, when he was being accused by Keir Starmer of being part of the problem, he says, of course I'm not. I'm proud to be a member of the Labour Party. I joined the party when I was 16. Uh, I've fought racism all my life, and I'll fight racism for the rest of my life, says former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. And he's been pretty consistent on that point from the beginning of this. Some might argue that he's been a little bit too... Uh, he hasn't come out swinging early enough, and that he's really a victim of his own weakness. Mm -hmm on this issue. So, and uh, we can't go without showing uh, Dame Margaret Hodge weighing in, of course, doing a victory lap here. Of Corbyn, she says, he is yesterday's man. He is absolutely irrelevant. What we're looking to, thank goodness, is the present and the future. So this is clear that her mission was to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn. Mm -hmm. And this is clear in all her statements. That was the goal. That's what they wanted at the end of this, was not only that he lost the election, but he's out of the party completely. And so now we're, we have a, a situation, Mike, where this is a potential civil war 2.0 within the Labour Party, as if it wasn't already brewing before. Mm. Uh, any of the Corbynites or loyal Corbynistas, they're going to really take this badly, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, so this isn't, you know, Chris Williams is a, was a high-profile MP, Mike, but he, he's not of the, the weight and stature of, of Jeremy Corbyn, who rallied millions, tens of millions of, of people to vote for their party mm. uh, in, in some of the most successful uh, numbers in terms of labor turnout, labor votes in history. Yep. So, but moving on swiftly here, she says, uh, suggesting that complaints of anti-Semitism are fakes or smears, as the EHRC points out, is an act of anti-Semitism in itself. Oh, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. Yes, no, yeah, just, just any suggesting of it, Mike, as she said in her words here, that's an act of anti-Semitism. So skepticism wow. or querying, uh, you know, fl a flood of accusations that are based on what looks like very spurious reporting and a lot of politicized uh, machinery going on in the back rooms of the Labour HQ. That that's questioning that or being skeptical or wanting more clarification uh, is is anti-Semitic. So that's interesting. So in the meantime, another victory lap here. Rachel Riley celebrates as Jeremy Corbyn is suspended from the Labour Party. Uh, she's, oh, countdown star. I wasn't yes. sure what she did for a living, no. but she's a, a person of note there. So she's earning her crust. 
And uh, so let's take a look at the uh, EHRC report here. This is uh, the campaign against anti-Semitism. It's important to point out, Mike, that this purge will not end with Corbyn. It didn't end with Chris Williamson. It's not going to end with Corbyn. Take a look at this. The campaign against anti-Semitism said it has filed complaints to labor about 16 other MPs. Uh, in, after Corbyn, they're going after Diane Abbott, uh, Tahir Ali, Mike Amesbury, Absana uh, Begum, Richard Burgeon, uh, Barry Gardner, Kate Holern, uh, Afzal Khan, Rebecca Long-Bailey, Angela Rayner, uh, Steve Reed, Lloyd Russell Moy, and Barry Sherman, and Zara Sultana, who's a very you know, outspoken labor. I think she's spoken out against lockdown. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, that's a full purge. That's the hit list that the lobby is after. And they are they going to go after them? They want them out of the party? Where is it going to end? This is just an unbelievable thing. Yes. So th this was actually warned about in detail in 2017. And this is when we start seeing the clues of how this all came to be. This was an Al Jazeera documentary called The Lobby. Uh, this was made in 2017, and it really detailed, Mike, the plan out of the Israeli embassy to basically go after certain labor politicians and to, to basically get them out, you know, smear them publicly and, you know, flush them out of the party to transform uh, the policy of the Labor Party because they saw Corbyn as a potential threat uh, getting into power and being sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. And so this was all detailed chapter and verse in this three-part investigation, which you can watch I believe it's up on YouTube in some sh way, shape, or form, uh, called The Lobby on Al with Al Jazeera. But just going back, uh, going back, look at this, 2016, this is when it, we started to see clues about what was going on. This is a long campaign here. This, is, this was The Independent saying 75% of press coverage misrepresents Jeremy Corbyn. We can't ignore the media bias anymore. That's what they were talking about back in 2016. And things have changed radically, obviously, in the years that ensued. And But we saw clues like this. This is people like Peter Mandelson coming out, and also uh, Philip Collins here. Labor must stop trying to frustrate Brexit. Um, so again, it, it was all about positioning or cornering Corbyn in advance of the general election. And so the, this was the end result here as well. Peter Mandelson slams Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer for not acting in the nat national interest and so dilly-dallying on, you know, opposing Brexit or it's, you know, so it's the Blair Remain position. The, the object was to hamstring Jeremy Corbyn uh, in advance of the national election because uh, previously he had said that uh, you know, he would respect the will of the people uh, on Brexit and then came the flip-flop. Yes. And that was really the death knell. And this was documented as well here. Uh, crushed by Brexit, how labor lost the election. This is how history is written. So th th this was the goal, Mike. If you, if you imagine this, if, if they hadn't put the pressure on Corbyn to change his position on Brexit, would Boris had won? Maybe he would have won, but maybe not with the majority. But, you know, those, uh, you know, the red wall in the north, you know, w would the story have been the same? That's the question. It is the question. I don't think it would have been. So, I think I think Corbyn, that was where he made his biggest mistake was his position on Brexit, uh, and of course that was made because he was uh, trying to keep the plates of the various factions within the parliamentary Labour Party spinning, and he didn't. He wouldn't take a stand based on his own 
uh, volition. He was determined to try to appease um, the, the Blairites within the party, and it has ended badly. And uh, Boris came in with a massive majority, uh, a huge mandate, and so this has given the regime the power that it is now exercising today. So I see all these things, Mike, as connected in a long continuum. They're not as separate incidents. I think that this uh, situation to smear Corbyn, to break the Labour Party up, is, is very much um, part of what we're seeing right now in terms of the transformation of government. That, transformation of the country that that is absolutely correct and of course uh, you know many many people don't like Jeremy Corbyn but the fact is uh, that as a result of all this the labor there is no effective opposition in this in this country there's no political opposition to anything this government is doing uh, other than any opposition that the public provides uh, which need, there needs to be much more of but there's no political opposition to what's going on uh, with the, the Tory government at the moment so even if you don't like the opposition you still, in a health, in democracy, you need a viable opposition. Yes. Otherwise, whoever's in power is going to run roughshod over the Constitution, over the law, over everything. Yes. So. Now let's uh, move on to international stuff. And uh, this is Neil Bush. He's the uh, UK representative to the OSCE. And he was uh, giving a statement yesterday uh, on the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, he said, uh, we strongly condemn the continued shelling of civilian areas. Now this... Uh, the, the full statement reads, uh, the, U the United Kingdom welcomed the most recent humanitarian ceasefire and we're once again deeply disappointed to see that it is not being respected. We strongly condemn the continued shelling of civilian areas. Uh, we're particularly, con oh, the, the, this of course is Dominic Rabb's uh, earlier comment on this. Uh, continued reports of civilian casualties are a stark reminder of the impact that this conflict is having on uh, innocent civilians. And the narrative uh, Patrick, that's being built by both Dominic Rabb and uh, by our representation in the OSCE, uh, is that uh, you know this is particularly horrendous little conflict. It's affecting civilians. Uh, I wonder where we've heard of that before. Now the issue here is, of course, that uh, um, we've seen the import of Syrian fighters uh, into Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, they've come in under the auspices of uh, Turkey. Uh, and uh, the number that's been bandied about so far is a thousand, a thousand of them coming in from Idlib. And of course, the people that are in Idlib are all terrorists or terrorist affiliates. Um, and uh, so a thousand of these Syrian fi fighters have gone into uh, Nagorno-Karabakh working for a what's being described as a private Turkish security firm. But we don't actually know who that, which firm that is at and, this and point. And I'm telling you, those numbers are vastly underestimated because there are tens of thousands of these type of people in Turkey itself, not in Idlib, just, just you know, right. at their leisure in Turkey. Right. Now, the question is, how did they get to Nagorno-Karabakh? Well, they got to Nagorno-Karabakh because they were taken from Idlib to Gaziantep in Turkey, and they were flown from Gaziantep to Nagorno-Karabakh. They were taken from a particular training camp in Gaziantep, and I'm going to uh, strongly suggest that it was this one. Uh, because uh, Boris Johnson in 2016 was in this training camp in Gaziantep promoting the white hel helmets, promoting the humanitarian aid that the Foreign Office was uh, sending to the Syrian rebels, in inverted commas, at the time. There is a distinct British connection to this uh, Gaziantep camp uh, where these um, campaigners, shall we call them, uh, have been flown through to get to Nagorno-Karabakh. And the key point is, Patrick, that it's the same old narrative 
that we saw in Syria, civilians being bombed. Well, no, what's actually happening is that these types of people go in and they take over civilian institutions in the, the area. They take over the schools, they take over the hospitals. They use those as their uh, command and control points. That then makes those places legitimate targets. But the problem is that once that those places are targeted, then the mainstream media, without any actual consideration of what's really going on there, simply publishes, and the government as well, publishes civilian, civilians targeted. This is the same MO that they ran in, in Syria, is yeah. now being run in this conflict. It's a formula. Yes. It's a, it's a formula for subterfuge, yeah. Yeah, so if you would like to uh, get a little bit more on the background to this, uh, I do recommend Alex Thompson's uh, article on the UK column, uh, Far Away People of Whom We Know Nothing, Azerbaijan and Turkey's War in Armenia. Uh, do uh, have a read at that. Now, staying uh, international with a British uh, uh, link, uh, here is uh, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, um, who is apparently back in court on Monday. Uh, and as a result, the Iranian ambassador has been summoned uh, to the Foreign Office uh, for a talking to. Now, uh, she, of course, uh, is, was arrested in April 2016. She was, uh, she's a dual national, so she's dual Iranian and uh, British national. She was traveling to visit her parents um, and she was arrested and uh, imprisoned for five years uh, on various charges of, of uh, subversion and so on of the Iranian state. Uh, this is the uh, statement that the uh, Foreign Office has made on this. We have made it clear to the Iranian ambassador that his country's treatment of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe is unjustified and unacceptable, and it's causing an enormous amount of distress. Iran is further tarnishing its reputa reputation through its actions towards Nazanin. It's time to end her arbitrary detention and that of the other dual British nationals it is holding. Now, uh, why, just want to remind everybody why she was arrested in the first place. And uh, she was working at the time for Thomson Reuters Foundation. Uh, and uh, this is Monique Villa, who was the C chief operating officer at the time, saying that uh, these charges were linked to her work at BBC Media Action and at Thomson Reuters Foundation. Now, uh, Monique Villa absolutely denies that Thomson uh, Reuters Foundation works in Iran, has no program dealings with or dealings with Iran. Uh, that was the Thomson Reuters Foundation position. But if you remember at the time, Patrick, Boris Johnson's position was somewhat different uh, because he said to the select committee that when we look at what Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe was doing, she was simply teaching people journalism, as I understand it, at the very limit. And you see, this is the problem. This is the core of the problem. Now, she was found guilty of a charge in Iran. Uh, many people would argue that uh, uh, there's no justice in Iran, uh, no just proper justice system, and so that guilty charge doesn't necessarily show anything. So let's give her the benefit of the doubt and say that she uh, wasn't doing anything or she didn't believe she was doing anything underhand. But the point here is that one aspect of British soft power, which is extremely important, is this notion of media development. There's an entire department within the Foreign Office, uh, the counter disinformation and media development uh, team. Uh, and uh, this is something that uh, organizations funded by the Foreign Office but outside of government, for example, BBC Media Action, who she used to work for, are very, very uh, good at this media development thing. And what does that mean? Well, we have to again bring Ju Juliet Harkin, formerly of BBC Media Action, on screen with her quote and explain what that means. Because she said, with respect to Syria, that we, BBC Media Action, worked in 2004 with individuals within the Syrian ministry 
who want to change and try to get them to be the drivers of that. All media development work that has been done in Syria has, in my opinion, been predicated upon this idea that there can be change within, from within. You have an author authoritarian regime, you find out who the reformers are, and you work you, and within that and you work with them. And this is what media development is all about. It is about the subversion of national governments. It's about regime change. It's something that Britain has been putting a lot of money into over the years. It's something that Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe was involved with through media action, the BBC Media Action, and also through Thomson Reuters Foundation, because they do the same kind of work. Uh, and whether they were doing it in Iran or not, I, I can't say, they, they denied it. But, but the point is that that was the type of work that she was involved with. Boris Johnson suggested that she was training journalists. Well, when a Westerner goes into a country to train journalists, they're training them uh, to provide Western-style journalism with a Western-style narrative. And we've seen what happened in Syria uh, when uh, media development work resulted in so-called Syrian journalists providing so-called stories to Western media, which reinforced the Western narrative for what was going on there. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, it should, to be fair, to be fair, if, if you know, her, her lawyers or whoever's representative is arguing that even if she was working for Thomson Reuters or BBC Media Action, she could have potentially worked in an innocuous fashion within the organization. But we have shown that some of these organizations are clearly involved in soft power subterfuge. There's no doubt about that. So that's that's something for her defense uh, to argue and to make clear. But at the end of the day, uh, you also have to understand that the Iran views itself as being at war with the West. Mm -hmm. And the uh, assassination, the double assassination of Qasem Soleimani uh, and Abu Mahendes uh, at the New Year, just this past New Year, by the United States with the help of Israeli intelligence, uh, Suleimani, General Suleimani, who was fighting ISIS mm -hmm. on the ground and, and doing a fantastic job against Al-Qaeda and ISIS. That probably set negotiations for Zagori Radcliffe back. I would imagine mm -hmm. that the, the Iranians would have said, because they're looking for leverage. They, they might not mind releasing her, Mike, but they also want something probably in return. Mm -hmm. That's just reality uh, in terms of power politics. So uh, I think Britain's hand would have been weakened uh, substantially by the Israeli-U.S. strike uh, on Soleimani. I say Israeli-U.S. because Israel uh, is de was definitely the spotter, delivered the intel mm. that the U.S. acted on. So that's what all the reports suggest. So that set Britain back on this. So, you know, in a, re in a really wonderful world, Mike, we'd have countries like Britain with an independent foreign policy, maybe, enough to go to Washington and say, why did you do that? You just ruined this you know, can you help us get her released now? Mm. You know, this is, none of this is happening. Everything is a just a giant power block uh, against block and then a stalemate on so many different fronts. And this is the result. She might be in there much, much longer than maybe she uh, she should be. You know, her family probably wanted her back a, a couple of years ago. But yes. the, the reality is there's a war going on. It's a geopolitical fight. And Iran's involved, Britain's involved, the U.S. is involved, so. And perhaps... Uh the issue here isn't the Iranians so much as the British government and the British government attitude to Iran. That too, yeah, that might yeah. have a lot to be desired yes. as well. Okay, well, look, we'll have to leave it there for today. Thank you very much for joining me today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we will be back on Wednesday next week because, we, uh, as I said, no programme on Monday as we uh, tidy up after uh, AV 11.1. Uh, so we'll see you on Wednesday, and I hope you have a great weekend.
Bye-bye.